Well, once again, good morning. Now, come on, it's not like you ran seven miles and you're out of breath. <laughs> My goodness. I'm not even going to honor that with a second chance. Sorry. <laughs> not nearly good enough. I don't know whether it was because um, I didn't grow up in Spokane uh, that I just don't connect with Bloomsday a whole lot. Like, I just don't have this desire to go out and, uh, and run seven miles at a time just because. Um, but, you know, I'm willing to engage. I'm willing to take part in, in the spirit of the city and stuff like that. But when I found that we had a number of young, healthy, vibrant staff members, and it meant a lot to them to be able to run, I said, look, I'll take one for the team, and I'll skip the run this year so that you all can go and, and enjoy that. I mean, you all are here, so I know you appreciate what I'm talking about there, because... Because what you like, for every one of us that would go down there and run, that's just a t-shirt that somebody else wouldn't get. Who wants to do that? <laughs> right? So we got lots of reasons to be here. Like, as opposed to running, we've got donuts. This is my kind of place. Okay, you see what I'm talking about? We're together. And now you are fully justified in not running. And so with a little more energy, can I say, good morning? Good morning. There we go. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. And clapping. Fantastic. Hey, we're going to turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 24. So if you're following along in your Bible, you can be uh, thumbing there. This account in Luke, in Luke 24, actually, it takes place on the exact same day that Jesus was raised from the dead. So that Easter Sunday morning where, uh, where they went to the tomb and it was empty and stuff, this is a little bit later on on the same day. And in Luke's account, at least as you kind of read through it, verse by verse by verse, the disciples that we're talking about, they haven't yet had any independent confirmation that Jesus is alive, okay? They know that, uh, that some of the folks went to the tomb early and that they talked to an angel. They know that there was nobody in the tomb. They know that the grave clothes were there and the body wasn't, but they haven't actually talked to Jesus. They don't exactly know what's going on. There's still, for them, a lot more questions than there are answers, okay? And so there's a certain amount of confusion and uncertainty, of course, that goes along with that. And so we're going to pick up Luke's account in verse 13 of chapter 24. It says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. See, there's that seven-mile thing. <laughs> and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And so I want, just for a second, put yourself in their place and think about all the different things that they would have been talking about that had happened. Um, they were, I mean, these were the disciples of Jesus that the Romans had put to death because they sensed, him in, sensed in him a threat to the, their superiority and a threat to their control. He was a rebel. He was an instigator, and so they put him to death, and these were his disciples. So those who had aligned most closely with Jesus were also subject to being targeted by Rome for execution. So there was a certain amount of danger just by virtue of having been associated with Jesus. And in addition to just the danger and all the fear that goes along with that, there was all manner of disappointment, right? If you can imagine all the hopes that they had had, all the dreams, their understanding of how Jesus was going to establish his kingdom and all the things that were going to take place and maybe they were going to have a place of power within Jesus' earthly rule. And now none of this was going to happen because Jesus was dead. And along with the sense of danger and along with that sense of disappointment, there was this really heavy, uh, palpable sense of doubt about what had just happened over the course of the weekend. What did it all mean? The, the tomb is empty. Does that mean that Jesus really had risen or was the body just missing or stolen? Jesus had said that he would come back. Had he or would he? Will he? 
And Jesus was put to death. Is it, how is it possible that someone who had been put to death like that could actually be the, the Messiah that he had promised to be? All of these questions, uncertainties, and doubts were at the front of their mind as they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. A week before, they'd been there at the triumphal entry, right? Crowds cheering, and it looked like it was all going down, like Jesus was ready to reveal himself as the Messiah, and the people were ready to accept him, and that they would be free from the oppression of Rome. They would be, have some political freedom, and that would be awesome. And that Jesus, in so doing, that would fulfill all of the prophecies from the Old Testament, and he would establish this new kingdom of God in Jerusalem. And then, all of a sudden, that was impossible. Their hopes and their dreams, their expectations, they all had come crashing down over the course of one weekend. And the result of that is this lasting heaviness, this disappointment. And so they're processing that and saying, what do we do? Well, what they do is that they leave Jerusalem and head for Emmaus because they just needed to change. They, they bolted from home base. They left, every, they left everything they knew and everybody they knew, their friends, their families, the other disciples, and they headed away. They ran. Have you ever been there? Have you ever just been in a place of struggle and uncertainty and doubt and fear and danger and, and it's just, I don't know where to go or what's the right place to be. I just know I've got to have a change. I don't maybe even care if it's right, good, or wholesome. I just, I can't stay here. I can't take it. I've got to go somewhere. I've got to do something. I've got to go. I've got to move. I've got to change. Well, that's where they were, and they found themselves heading to Emmaus. And interestingly enough, um, for all the things archaeology does know, archaeology doesn't know where Emmaus was. They know it's a city. They know it's about seven miles outside of Jerusalem in some direction, but different archaeologists and, and folks will give you different answers about where on that kind of seven-mile perimeter uh, that Emmaus would be. Lots of different theories. They haven't really locked it down. It remains unknown. But metaphorically, I think Emmaus exists as a place in each one of us that we very clearly know and can locate and can understand. Because metaphorically, um, Emmaus is the place to which these two disciples run in response to the danger and in response to the disappointment and in response to their doubt. And that's important, right? Because all of us, when we encounter those kinds of things, we all have our different coping mechanisms, the different way that we deal with things like that. We have our own places that we run to. Sometimes it's a six-pack or a bottle. Sometimes it's into the arms of somebody else, into a relationship that's not appropriate. Fill in the blank for your own particular place, but when our frustration with the way things are and the gap between the way things are and the way we had hoped that they would be, when that gap gets so large, we just have to go somewhere. We have to do something. We have to leave. We have to change. Not because it's right, not because it's helpful, not because it's good or effective, but because at least it's something. At least it's change. At least it's different. It may be something that masks the pain. It's something that lets me get through the day. So whatever that mechanism is for you, that's your Emmaus. That, that's the place you walk to and head towards when the doubt and the danger and the disappointments are too strong to take. And so here they are, these two disciples uh, running away from the most painful events that they'd ever known and could ever imagine. So let's see how they're doing, and let's see how it is that God meets them even as they're running off to their Emmaus. As they talked and as they discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up, and he walked along with them. 
but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. They had seven miles to go, and midwalk, they just stop, because that question brings such a heaviness, and their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? I think it's interesting, that phrase that's in there, that they were kept from recognizing him. That's kind of a powerful idea and a powerful phrase. See, Jesus was there with them. He was literally walking alongside them, talking and interacting with them as they traveled the better part of a seven-mile journey. And all along the way, they never knew it, never recognized it, never even suspected that it was so. In fact, you can make the case that in addition to just not recognizing him, that they treated him kind of rudely. He asked a simple question about the things going on. They say, are you kidding me? Are you, are you so disconnected that you don't know what's been going on? Like, how, how unconnected are you? How unaware are you? What rock did you just crawl out of? Which is ironic, because the rock he just crawled out of was the tomb, and he was risen from the dead. You know, his answer to that question would be, you know, what have I been doing? I, I've been on the cross redeeming humanity. I've been in the tomb overcoming death. I've been in Hades preaching deliverance and freeing the captives there. What have you guys been doing? <laughs> uh, we've been running away. <laughs> but Cleopas and his pal, they're kept from recognizing the presence of their good friend and of their leader and, by the way, their Messiah. How is it possible? And I'd like to suggest something that I think we'll all recognize is inherently true, that sometimes... Um, it's the very things that cause us to run away in the first place, those dangers, uh, disappointments, and doubts. It's those very things that cause us to run away that keep us from seeing that God is with us along the way, right? When we feel like we're just moving and going somewhere and I just wish that God was with me, sometimes it's the very thing we're running from that keep us from seeing that he's actually there with me along the way. So as you and I, we run to our own kind of Emmaus places, those places where we go to escape. It's possible that the things we're running from will keep us from seeing that God is with us right now. And the beautiful thing about this account in Luke 24 is it opens our eyes to the reality that God is still active. God is still uh, relating to us along the way, whether we recognize it or like these two disciples, uh, if we don't. The passage says that Jesus came up and the walked along with them. And so here they are, specifically with regard to the danger. They're running from the possibility of persecution and death, and they're leaving, and they sense the danger. And in response to that, God responds to our danger by joining and accompanying us on the journey, right? They're in danger, they're leaving, and so what does Jesus do? He says, I'm going to come alongside, and I'm going to walk with you as you go. And the fact that God is with us means that we really then have nothing to fear. There is no danger that is not overcome by the simple truth that God is with us. And there is nothing that you or I face today that can stand against the truth and the power that God is with us. See, hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Isaiah was speaking to Israel. And in the era in which he prophesied, prophesied Israel was under a distinct threat. In fact, her, her very existence was threatened by the presence of other world powers. And this is how the prophet Isaiah records the words of God to his people under those circumstances. 
He says, I took you from the ends of the earth, and from its farthest corners I called you. And I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you, and I have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And all who rage against you will surely be ashamed and will be disgraced. And those who oppose you will be as nothing. They'll perish. And though you search for your enemies, you won't find them. And those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, I am with you. And do not fear, I will help you. These are the words of God to those who are in danger. And to those who are in danger and fleeing on that road to Emmaus, trying to leave it all behind, God says, no, it's not just that you run away from it. It's that I come along with you and I take care of you. I am with you and I protect you. Let's turn back to our friends on the way to Emmaus then and see what else happens. Jesus asks, you know, what things? What things are you talking about? And they say, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers, they handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all of this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. And so in response to Jesus' question about the things that they're talking about, they just unload their whole life story on him. They share every frustration, every misunderstanding, every confusion, every bit of pain. In short, they just unload their discontent on Jesus. And Jesus says to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? I think it's really interesting here the difference in perspective between the disciples on the one hand and Jesus on the other. Uh, they come from completely different places. The disciples' perspective can probably be summed up in their statement when they say, we had hoped. And you just hear the, the despair and the loss of that. We, we had hoped that, the, that we would receive freedom and the oppression would have ended. We had hoped that God's promises were going to be fulfilled. And, and now after the death and the intervening three days, it looks like that's not going to happen. That's the disciples' perspective. We had hoped, but we're disappointed. Jesus' perspective, on the other hand, begins with the realiza realization that the Messiah had to suffer and that God was in that somehow. He knew that God's purposes were larger than those of the disciples. And he knew that God's goals in all of this went far beyond anything that the uh, disciples could have understood. What God was accomplishing outdistanced the immediate suffering and the confusion that they were experiencing. And there's something that we can learn here 
about the way that God responds to our disappointment as well as the way that he responds to our danger. He responds to the danger by coming alongside, but God responds to our disappointment by reminding us of his true purpose. That's what Jesus did when faced with the disappointment of, these, of his disciples. He brings them back to God's true purpose. The Messiah had to suffer. This is how it was prophesied that God's plans would be fulfilled. And God's truest purpose, the purpose that we can always fall back on, is that he is always suffering on our behalf, that he is always dying in our place, and that he is always overcoming the power of sin in our life. God is always about that. And so God's primary purpose is to make us holy, and that program of holiness making will not always be comfortable for us. It will be difficult at times. It will be lonely, and very frequently it will be challenging. And if we allow it to, all that pain and all the loneliness and all the challenge can blind us to what God is really all about. Have you ever been at that spot where it's just, it's hard, it's difficult, it's painful, it's challenging, and that is all I see? Anything about God's purposes, God's design, his intent hides behind this wall of pain, challenge, and difficulty that's in front of me. And we can get so caught up in those moments, in the difficult circumstances that we miss the point. God is doing something amazing right there in the middle of our pain, right there in the middle of our difficulty. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So be encouraged, Jesus would say, as he responds to our disappointments. Things aren't working out the way that we think. Things are more difficult than we anticipated. We're not finding the results that we had hoped for. And in our disappointments, we begin to lose perspective, but God's at work. But, but Paul reminds us, and Jesus does as well, that there's a truth of God at work. There's a greater purpose than what we see. He responds to even our disappointments by coming and saying, God is at work in you, and that the afflictions that you and I walk through day in, day out, are not the end themselves, but they are actually working in us an eternal weight of glory that extends beyond them all. And so beginning, Jesus, with the Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So you have seven miles to walk, right? And you get a seven-mile Bible study. And they may be thinking, well, thank, thank goodness he's talking because we're out of breath and we'll just listen to him along the way. But he takes them from Genesis through Malachi, through 39 books of the Old Testament, and shares with them how all of it points to the person of the Messiah. Seeing their doubt and their uncertainty about was he really who he said he was, what had really happened with this Jesus? Why had he died? Jesus sees all the uncertainty and the doubt and goes through the Old Testament. And, and we learn again something here, how it is that God responds to the doubts that you and I have. Those doubts that we have when we're just not sure what he's up to, if he's really at work in my life, is he really taking these, uh, these afflictions and turning them into a weight of glory? When we doubt, God responds to our doubt by steering us back to the truth of the Bible. They had their doubts about who the Messiah was supposed to be and how it was supposed to work out. And so Jesus took them back to Scripture, not to an idea, not to a mindset, not to a framework, not to a philosophy. He took them back to the Bible. And God responds to our doubt by speaking the truth in Scripture and by giving us the mind of Christ so that we can understand his perspective. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful. It's useful for teaching. 
and for rebuking and for correcting and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What to do when we doubt? What do we do when it's just difficult and Jerusalem's back there and we're headed for Emmaus just to get away from it all and we're not even clear about what's going on, about what it means or about how it's going to turn out and we just doubt God's purposes? Well, when that was the experience of these two on the road to Emmaus, Jesus came alongside and he steered them back to the Bible. And I would say if you find yourself in a season of doubt due to the circumstances you're walking through, I want to encourage you, by, by way of application, one of the strongest things you can do is simply to bury yourself in Scripture. Allow the words of God's truth to be something that influences your mind and your heart and your spirit on a daily basis and let it wash you clean of the doubts that otherwise would exist. So, in response to the disciples running away to Emmaus, Jesus helps them in their danger, right? By walking alongside and being with them. And he responds to their disappointment by saying, no, there's a, there's a greater purpose here than you can see. And he responds to their doubt by saying, let me show you what the truth really is. I mean... Seven miles of the ministry of Jesus into the life of a couple of hurting people, and you think, that's great. Only they don't get it. They, they remain blind to who he is. They remain unclear about who this man is that's talking to him for the whole way until they get to Emmaus. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and then he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? There's this moment where they're having dinner with a guy that they met on the road, one moment they're having dinner with a stranger, and in the next moment they realize it's been Jesus all along. And, and the thing that moved from the first moment into the second was Jesus breaking the bread and giving thanks and sharing it with them. He breaks the bread and he offers it to them. And this is exactly what he had done a few nights before in the upper room with the disciples when he instituted communion, the Lord's Supper. When he had said to the disciples, this is my body which will be broken for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which will be shed for you. And, and then in the ensuing hours, his body wasn't just figuratively broken, it was really broken. And his blood wasn't just figuratively shed, it was literally spilt out and his life was ended and he was killed very literally, literally broken before them he was killed and, and now even though he had been dead this action of breaking the bread with these disciples the ones who had been told do this in remembrance of me he reenacts that and he breaks the bread for them and he shares it with Cleopas and his buddy and in that moment they get it his body was, had been broken. He had died, but he's back. He's here, and he's risen, and he's alive. And in handing them the bread, it's like he's saying, just like I promised, 
I died. And just like I promised, I'd live again and have overcome the grave. I have overpowered death. I've got this. And whatever it is that you're running from, whatever doubts and dangers and disappointments from which you run, I have got them too. The power to overcome them is inherent in the power that allowed a body that had been broken and killed to be back to life and here sharing this with you. And it's in the breaking of the bread and the reenacting of that Lord's Supper that the scales fall from the disciples' eyes and they encounter Jesus who had been with them all along. And in just a moment, we're going to share the Lord's Supper as well. We're going to share the elements of communion together. But as we do, I, I, I just want to ask, especially for those who maybe feel like you're in a place in your journey, maybe it's from a Jerusalem place to an Emmaus place of your own, or maybe it's just the day in, day out of an everyday life. But there comes these moments where we say, I can't find God in any of this. And I'm fearful of what lies ahead. I may be hurt by what lies behind. And I, I can state make a statement by faith that perhaps there's some higher purpose for all of this, but I am blind to it. In fact, God could be with me here in the room, and I don't think I would even know it. And I think that this morning, just like on that evening in Emmaus, as the bread is broken and offered to us, we have the opportunity for God to allow the scales to fall from our eyes. And as we celebrate the brokenness of Christ and his sacrifice for us, as we do that, we allow him to empower us to see that to which we've been blind before, that God is with us, that he empowers us, that he walks alongside us, that he points us to the truth. This is the God we serve. So we're going to uh, sing a song uh, of worship as the ushers come and as they hand out the elements. And go ahead and take the elements as they come by. Hang on to them. We're going to receive those together at the same time in just a minute when I come back up. But, but for now, let's worship the Lord for just a moment.